Hey friends, welcome to my podcast, Straight Talk with Salim. I believe the word of God is truly the lamp unto our feet and a guiding light for our path. And a majority of the church neglects this guiding light because it's too difficult to comprehend. Well, God has given me a hunger to study the Bible and a passion to share it with you. My friends, if we don't understand the word, how can we apply it to our lives and actually live in obedience to Jesus? So join me now as we walk through God's word and learn the essentials of living a Christ-centered life. Welcome back to Straight Talk with Celine, week five of this Revelation series. Uh, this week, we're focusing on part three of the letters to the churches. Yes, I had to make a part three uh, because there's so much within these letters that we need to be careful not to miss. And there's just so much goodness and so many takeaways that we can apply to our life. And I always say, I mean, we can read the scripture um, all day, but if, if we don't apply it, I mean, what, what good does it really do? So let's jump into this. As we open to Revelation chapter three, we now uh, move to the final churches um, that Jesus addresses in his letters. We start with, with the church in Philadelphia. And this church is, is in Revelation three, verses seven through 13. And Jesus is commending this church for their faithfulness. But notice that Jesus gives them no rebuke. Why? Because of their faithfulness, because of their endurance. I mean, we all should strive to be like this church. And what call to action does Jesus leave them with? He just leaves them with, with this call to action, hold on and endure. And for those who are faithful uh, to Christ, what is he saying to us? He's saying the same thing. Hold on, endure. Stand firm, no matter how bad it gets. So this brings us to this last deep dive. And I want to take a deep dive into the church of, of Laodicea because there's just so much here uh, for us to, to, to look at, to pick apart. And there was so much I learned as I walked through this myself. And I'm excited to share uh, with all of you what the, what the Lord showed me. So let me just read Revelation 3. 14 through 22. And it is here. It says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy from me gold, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments for me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and I knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and I sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. So when we start in verses 14 through 16, where it says, write this letter to the angel of the church and later see this is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do. 
that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you're like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So this is the last of seven churches and the most well-known letter uh, of them all. Even though this church at Laodicea wasn't really well-known. And I just want to point out that, and this is just a very general, broad statement, but the scriptures are at times used out of context. I mean, it's like, it's like loving a song, knowing a song, singing it all your life, and then one day opening the lyrics and realizing that you've been singing uh, the song wrong your whole life. I mean, this letter to the church of Laodicea is a lot like that. This is the infamous hot and cold and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth letter. And though there are some truths here that are, that are very easy to see, we must understand the context of this letter to truly understand what Jesus is saying. I want to point out that the dangerous question to ask here is what does this passage mean to me? Why? Because this passage can actually mean to you something different than what it actually means. I mean, we need to be interested in what it actually means, not what it means to you and I. How it applies to us, now that's a different story. Absolutely, that should matter. But not, not what it means to us. So we need to keep that in mind. And in this passage, the, the historical and the, the geographical background is more important than any other passage of, of Scripture in, in, well, regarding to these, you know, these seven churches. It's truly going to help us understand the context, therefore helping us uh, to understand how this, this applies to us today. So how, how would I title this letter in my own words? I mean, I think, I think I, I'd, I'd call it a house call for a sin-sick church. I mean, the way Jesus lays this out, he almost lays it out in, in medical terms. The way he diagnoses their problem and then comes to, you know, this treatment plan. But first, let's look at how Jesus identifies himself. He, he is the amen. He is the last word. Jesus is not just the truth, but also the validation of the truth. I mean, when we say amen, we are saying it is so. We, we, we're saying it is true. We, we add our amen to testify to the truth. Well, Jesus is the truth. I mean, John 14, 6 is clear. Jesus is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Next, he is the faithful and true witness. I mean, this is important for a number of reasons, but we need to focus on the fact that this is, this is an Old Testament illusion. Christ is faithful Israel, the one who is, is prophesied of. He is the last Adam. He is God's faithful and true witness on earth. And now he is the faithful and true witness in heaven. He came in the flesh and he, ex he ascended back in the very flesh and he will come in the flesh as the mighty king. Finally, he is the beginning of God's new creation or, or he is the originator of, of the creation of God. He is the author of the creation of God. He is the creator. I mean, let's look at Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Essentially, this passage of text tells us that Christ is supreme. He, he's, he's, he is all in all. He is the beginning, the middle, the end, the whole story. And much of this imagery in Revelation is contained in, in this passage in Colossians. This defines right here what Jesus is saying. So go back and check out that text. 
Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And we need to understand a few things about what Jesus means when he says, I know your works. I mean, guys, this, when I explain, this should be terrifying to you and I. Jesus knows our works. Jesus speaks of knowing what you do and why you do it. He knows your motives. He knows your hearts. He knows your intentions. I mean, how many of us can, can say that when we do things for God, that we actually do them for his glory and not our own glory? I mean, how many of us do things for God without thinking of the kind of notoriety it's going to bring us? Well, guys, Jesus says, I, I know the heart of your works. Not just I know what you're doing. He knows why we're doing it, the motives. So when we run around and we claim to be doing this and this and this and that for the Lord, the world may think you're doing all those things for the Lord, but the Lord knows what you're doing for the Lord. There ain't no fooling him. But I want to point out that when Jesus speaks of works in these letters, he's speaking of, of a believer's witness. How faithful were these churches on the inside and outside in their testimony and witness and proclamation of the gospel? I mean, did they compromise in any way? I mean, how about our churches today? Seriously, let's examine ourselves right now. How are we really doing being the heralds that Jesus has called us to be? I mean, guys, this, if we're going to be honest, most of us won't even say the name Jesus in public. Most of us are afraid to stand for real truth. And it's very evident. We must understand how important the witness of God is because as we continue in Revelation, the idea of our witness will be vitally important. And one thing we see in Revelation is being a true and faithful witness as we follow in Jesus' footsteps there, it will lead to opposition and ultimately martyrdom. I mean, what did Jesus get for being the faithful and true witness? He got the cross. I mean, go turn to Revelation 11. Verses 1 through 10, read that. It basically says faithful witnesses are killed. Why? Be because they preach the gospel with no compromise and everything that goes against the world. And for that, the world comes against them and will hate and kill them for it. So when Jesus says, I am the faithful and true witness, another thing he is saying is I carried out my witnessing responsibility all the way to death. Turn to John 8, verse 18. And then scroll down a few more verses to 27 through 28. These two passages and many more show us that Jesus bears witness. And this is one of the many reasons that he came. And we are to do the same. And he showed us how it is done. And now we must follow the teacher. Next we read, you are neither hot nor cold. And many of us, including myself, quickly jump to this conclusion that may not be right. Guys, I'm guilty of this. Just a couple months ago, I, I did a, a devotion about being hot and cold. Guys, I was in for a big surprise when, when I got literally got schooled by God. If we're going to understand what Jesus is saying here, we, we really have to understand the geography of, of Lady Osea. If not, we just read hot and assume that that must be really good. And we read cold and assume that that must be bad. We might hear... I'd rather you be for me or against me, one or the other. If you're going to do one of those things, go all out. If you're going to be for me, go all out. If you're going to be against me, go all out. But that, that's not what Jesus is saying. First, we, we, we know this because he's talking to the church. 
uh, tell me where in the church, uh, in the scriptures, Jesus has ever told the church to be against me. Never. Another issue with this is we reduce this down to a measure of our passion, a measure of our intensity. Guys, it has nothing to do with passion and intensity. Nothing to do with being for him or against him. This is where we must use all of our context clues. It's very important to understand that Laodicea was the wealthiest of the seven cities and, and very rich in natural resources. It was known for its banking industry, known for their manufacture of wool and the medical school that produced this eye ointment. But the city always had a problem with its water supply. I mean, th this was a resource they didn't have much of. And they received their water from two cities. One was Colossae and the other was Heropolis. Colossae was the source of their cold water, streams of cold water that were good for drinking. And it was about six miles away. So, so you would pipe the water in from Colossae for your drinking water. And when you would pipe water in from six miles away from its source, it was cold. But by the time it, it goes through six miles of pipe, it was no longer cold. It was lukewarm. And then from Heropolis, an aqueduct was, was built to, to bring water to the city from, from the hot springs. They had water with, with calcium deposits um, that were used for med, uh, medicinal purposes. And this city was, was about 11 miles away. So, so by the time the water reached the city, it was, it was not hot, only lukewarm as well. So hot water is not bad. Cold, refreshing water is not bad. They're both good. Both are needed. Cold water for drinking becomes lukewarm. It's gross and it becomes useless. Hot water for, for the purposes they served, when it comes lukewarm, it, it's no longer good for its medicinal purposes and becomes useless. So friends, notice Jesus is not saying be passionately hot or cold. He is not saying be for me or against me. The problem is not the temperature. It's the distance from the source. This was the problem with the water coming from, from um, into Laodicea from Heropolis and Colossae. The water was too far away, and because of that, it was rendered useless. And the same goes for this church. They were too far from Jesus, disconnected from the vine, and this rendered them useless. This church had become as bland as tepid water that came into the city, and they were completely distant. I mean, this was the issue, and because of their distance from Jesus, they were not fulfilling the purposes for which they existed. I mean, guys, there are times when the church should be a cold drink of water on a hot day to be refreshing. And there are other days when the, the, the church should be healing balm for those who need healing. Remember, Jesus said it's the, it's the sick who need a doctor, right? And what Jesus is saying to the church is you are neither refreshing or healing. Therefore, I'm going to toss you out. You are vomit-inducing lukewarm water. Go look at the Greek. Vomit-inducing. I will vomit you out of my mouth. So the deal is this church in Laodicea had become lukewarm, therefore distasteful, useless, repugnant. I mean, the believers didn't take a stand for anything. I mean, this indifference had led to their idleness. And by neglecting to do anything for Jesus, the, the church had become hardened and, and had become um, self-satisfied and it was destroying itself. 
there's nothing more disgusting than, than a half-hearted nominal Christian who is self-sufficient. And guys, let me repeat that. And when I do, let it sink into your head and down into your heart. There is nothing more disgusting than a half-hearted nominal Christian who is self-sufficient. Guys, don't settle for following God halfway. Let Christ fire up your faith and get you into the action, get you off the sidelines. Allow the thought of Jesus rendering you useless to shake you at your core. I mean, when Jesus says spit you out, remember he is saying vomit you out. These are his words, friends. And I know he just didn't mean this for the church of Laodicea. He meant this for all the church for of all time. This includes us. Remember what I said in the first week of this series. This letter was written to the church of 96 AD, but it was written for us. Written to them, but for us. Verse 17, you say I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Guys, I just told you how wealthy this church was. And, and Jesus is telling them that they are what? That they're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. See, some believers assume that, that numerous material possessions are a sign of God's spiritual blessing. How often do you hear that in the prosperity gospel? You have faith. You're going to, you know, you're going to make it. You're going to, you're going to be successful. You're going to be rich. Guys, Laodicea was a wealthy city and the church was, was also very wealthy. But, but what this church um, uh, could see and buy had become more valuable to them than what was unseen and eternal. Wealth, luxury, and ease, it makes people feel confident. It makes people feel satisfied and complacent, doesn't it? But no matter, no matter how much you possess or how much money you make, you have nothing if you don't have a vital relationship with Jesus. I mean, how does your current level of wealth affect your spiritual desire? I mean, think about this and answer this honestly. And when we have it all, isn't it easy to just run to Jesus when a crisis hits? I mean, how many of us are guilty of that? And what this shows is we only need Jesus in our trials, not all the time. The reason? Well, our life is centered around our circumstances. It's centered around our comfort. Instead of centering your life primarily on comfort and luxury, find your true riches in Jesus. Period. And guys, here's where history comes into play. So I'm going to nerd out on you for a little bit, but bear with me because this is important for us to understand. Here was the attitude of, of, of the church of, of Laodicea or the city. They were thinking, I'm rich, I'm prosperous, I need nothing. And why was this significant in Laodicea? Well, they were the banking center. How wealthy was this city? They were so wealthy that in 60 AD, there was a devastating earthquake and it devastated towns all around the region. And in the Roman Empire, they had their own version of, of FEMA. And they would actually send money to cities to help them recover from natural disasters. So after this earthquake, Rome sent money to Laodicea to help them. And they sent it back saying, we don't need it. We have our own. And they completely rebuilt the city all on their own dime. They, they didn't need any help. And that was their attitude. And self-reliance was their thing. Friends, let's, let's just be real. Self-reliance is the death nail to Christianity. I can do this. I mean, this is when you don't need God. Well, let me ask you a question. What biblical Christian is self-reliant? 
None. Zero. I mean, you can't be a self-reliant Christian. And this is the issue with this church. And it reminds me a lot of the American church. I mean, look at the church in the West. How fat are we? How lazy are we? How comfortable are we? Here's the truth. The more abundance you have, the more likely you are to forget about this almighty God. Let's just be real. Let's not even sugarcoat it. Here was the other issue with, with Laodicea. We know all about these trade guilds. Remember the church of Thyatira? The one that was being seduced by this, this Jezebel type person, spirit that was in the church? Remember the people who were being seduced to engage in those pagan practices of the trade guilds? And those who didn't practice, it was simple. They, they couldn't make a living. Those people who refused to compromise had to be taken care of by the church. So what was happening all over this region was Christians and churches were losing income because they would not compromise their faith. And if they didn't compromise and join these trade guilds, they couldn't work. And with that being known, how, how were the, the, how were the, the people in Laodicea so rich? I mean, the trade guilds existed in, in Laodicea. What's obvious It's very simple. They, they were compromising. They were doing what they had to do. They, were, they weren't standing up for the gospel of Jesus because if they did, they would have lost that opportunity. Verse 18, so I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. Why is this significant? Remember, they are a banking center. They are a wealthy city. And guess what they had a whole lot of? A lot of gold. They had their own gold and plenty of it. We're rich. We don't need anything because we have gold. Jesus says you're wretched and blind and poor and naked. I mean, what does this say? This says Jesus doesn't care one bit about your wealth here on earth. <clears throat> you think you're rich, but you have nothing. Jesus is advising that we buy from him real gold. Gold that is eternal. Remember what Jesus said in John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You, you have nothing. Jesus is saying, those things you have in abundance, you, you need to come to me for. You need to recognize that they're not yours. You need to recognize that I am the beginning of the creation of God and those things all belong to me. Next, Jesus tells them to buy white garments to cover their nakedness. I mean, guys, remember, Laodicea was known for the textile industry where they produced black wool. Jesus says, buy white garments. These white garments, they represent our cleanness before God, they represent righteousness and holiness. And this gives us the ability to even approach him in worship. These garments are vitally important and will be spoken of a few times in Revelation. Another place they're mentioned is in Matthew 22, this, this uh, parable of this great feast. And what happened to that guest who was not wearing <clears throat> these white garments? He was tossed into outer darkness. Yeah, Jesus, Jesus said that. So there, there is a definite need for these garments. Jesus was saying it there and he is saying it again here. Finally, Jesus says, an ointment to anoint your eyes so you may see. Laodicea was famous for their medical school. And guess what? They were most famous for producing doctors who would treat the eyes with ointment made right there in the city. 
I mean, how crazy is this? Yes, my mind was blown by all of these details. And they're important to understand why Jesus is saying all of this. Without the context, none of this really makes sense. But notice that Jesus is going right to the heart. I mean, these words that he's speaking would absolutely have rocked this church. Conviction everywhere. Why does this church think they're wealthy and they need nothing? Well, because they have an abundance of gold. They have plenty of wool. They have a medical school that is known for doctors that produce um, and, and that produce this, this, this ointment that specifically treats the disease of the eyes and the, you know, the, 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 uh, anointment, this is, it, it treats it. What does Jesus say? You're, you're poor, you're naked and you're blind. Wow. I mean, he is completely dismantling their confidence in their stuff and their advancements. So what do they need to do according to Jesus? What do they need according to Jesus? They, well, they need to buy gold and garments and ointment from him. And many would say, but Jesus, they, they have the gold. They have the wool. They have the ointment. And they have it in abundance. But Jesus is saying, no, buy it from me. Buy gold so they won't be poor. Buy, buy these white garments so that they won't be naked. And buy this ointment so that they won't be blind. And the thing is, only Jesus has it. In order for them to receive, they they must turn from their independent, self-reliant ways and come desperate to him. This church is dealing with self-denial and self-reliance. These two are dangerous and lethal to any Christian. Friends, does this sound familiar to anyone? I'll just leave you with that question to ponder. Verse 19, I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. In other words, repent and turn from your sin. This is what Jesus is saying. And what happens if this disease of self-denial and self-reliance goes untreated? Well, if you don't treat this disease, you will be uh, reproved and disciplined by Jesus. I mean, notice what Jesus says, those whom I love. It's so hard for us to wrap our minds around this. I mean, we live in a day and age where everyone celebrates this universal fatherhood of God. God loves everyone. Everyone is God's child. Listen, if God loves everyone, his love is meaningless. Think about this. Think about it this way. I am a husband to my wife. If I say to my wife, I love you the same way I love everyone else. This means my relationship with my wife is no more intimate with her than it is with anyone else. You see what's happening here? This, this is a called adultery, period. My wife is my bride. And my love for her is not the same as my love for others. Jesus is saying here, those whom I love, it's his bride. It's, it's, it's his, his church who is set apart. He is referring to something different here. We are his bride and we are set apart. He doesn't love others the same as he loves his bride. Friends, God is angry at the wicked. He hates sin and he despises and he detests those who knowingly sin against him. He hates wickedness and he hates the wicked. We hate to talk about this, don't we? But here's the truth. Before we came to Christ, we were enemies of God. The scriptures declare this. The other part I want to point out, 
We're all God's children. Newsflash, we, we are not. The, this language that Jesus is using here is the, is the language of adoption. Those whom I love is referring to his children. Parents, how many of you discipline your children? Well, I know I do. How many of you discipline other people's children? Well, hopefully none of you. That would be weird. Or at least you should not be disciplining other people's children. But check out John 1 verses 11 through 12. And it's very clear what Jesus says here. Jesus came into the world and the world rejected him. But to all who what? All who believed in him accepted him. And and he gave the right to become children of God. So he gave those who believe the right. Huh. Friends, you and I don't need the right to become something that we're already, we already are. I mean, if, if we're all children of God, why would the Bible say this? If we're all children of God, why did Jesus have to come and die so that we could become children of God? For us to become children of the most high king, you and I must be adopted. And to be adopted, you must lay down your life and surrender to the lordship of Jesus. Jesus is boss. He's not just savior, he's Lord. And if that's not working for you, you are a child of the devil. You're an enemy of the king of kings, period. So enough with all that talk. The talk of you know all of us being God's children is dead based on that text. Verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and I will share a meal. We will share a meal together as friends. Friends, this is not a, a, a evangelistic verse. Jesus is not speaking to unbelievers here. Number one, this is a letter to a church. Number two, verse 19 makes it very clear that Jesus is using the language of sonship. So often we throw this verse out to unbelievers and we tell them, see, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking. Stop. Jesus is not knocking on the door of the hearts of, uh, of, of unbelievers. He's, he's knocking on uh, the door of the hearts, uh, the hearts of, of his church. That that's what this text is speaking about. There may be other scripture, other passages of, of scripture, scripture that points to the fact that, yes, Jesus is knocking on the hearts of the people of the world. But right now he's talking to the church. Let me explain. Remember when, when we referred to this church as the sin sick church? Remember the doctor, Jesus? Remember the disease? Vomit inducing lukewarmness? which we understand the geography has to do with the improper connection to the source. Laodicea was too far away from the source of the cold and hot water. So by the time it got to the city, it was lukewarm and useless. Spiritually speaking, the improper connection to Jesus, it leads to what? Self-reliance and self-deception. What's the cure? To be connected and dependent upon the source. And what does this doctor do? He comes to us. He makes the house call. So are we following this? Remember all that he said in the previous verses. He called them out and now he's coming to them saying, I am at the door knocking. Guys, let's always remember that we do nothing and Jesus did everything. Yes, we must respond, but the Lord freed us. He rescued us. He made us whole. And what happens when you open the door? What takes place? Man, Jesus comes in and he shares a meal. There's intimacy. There's friendship. Could it be that the text in this verse has direct implication to the Lord's Supper? I mean, when we gather before the table of the Lord, we always begin with repentance. And we do it so we are reminded that 
we are not self-sufficient and we are utterly dependent on Jesus. We are reminded that we are pitiful, wretched, blind, poor, naked. Guys, we must understand this. I'm not saying go beat yourself up. But understanding who we are and who Jesus is is vitally important. It's healthy. It's called humility. Friends, stop allowing people to tell you how great you are. You, you, you aren't great. We aren't great. The only good in us is the spirit of the living God. We are wretched and we need a, the doctor. We all need Jesus. Don't miss it. You and I desperately need to be reminded of our desperate need. We are desperately needy. I mean, Jesus's message to this church is examine yourself and repent and turn away from your self-reliance and turn to me. It's the same for us today. Very simply said, but very much a loaded statement. And we must get this right. Laodicea was one of the wealthiest cities on earth and they were known for, for all their advancements. They had access to everything, therefore not needing God. Does this city remind you of any other modern day cities or countries in this world? Yes, the U.S. falls into this trap of self-reliance and self-dependence. How hard is it to need God here? Very hard. We have so many luxuries that are problematic for the church. Many of us here struggle with vomit-inducing lukewarmness, and we need to make changes today. If you're hearing this, it's time to examine yourself. <clears throat> Verse 21. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. So what does it take to be victorious in Christ? Remember, there, there is nothing you can do but surrender. Wave the white flag. And it's every day. The rest is accomplished by Jesus. But a victorious life in Christ, it, it will not be easy. There are going to be struggles, but Jesus commands us to stand firm. And wrapping this up, verse 22, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Here we go again. Jesus sends the warning shot. Wake up and hear the message. Guys, as we read these letters to the seven churches, we tend to compare our church to past churches and we tend to try and see where we fit into the book. And the reality is we're, we're all these churches. All the things they struggled with, we struggle with. And here's what I want to challenge you to think about. Guys, a lot of us are asleep. And this is how the devil has attempted to deceive us. He gets us with apathy, thinking it's no big deal. See, the curtain of reality is being pulled back and we are seeing what is really happening here. It is a, there's a war going on in heaven. Guys, we're in a war. And we've been lulled to sleep by Netflix and all the apps when in reality there is a war going on and the enemy has completely blinded us to this reality. And if, if, you know, if we continue to move forward in this series, you're going to see what I mean by this based on this scripture, based on the truth, based on this doctrine. And guys, we're guilty of not caring about doctrine. Ask yourself, do you even care about God's truth? And God has made himself knowable. We don't have to guess. He has revealed himself. And how do you know you've, you've given in to this scheme of the enemy? Well, guys, when you just don't care to know any more about the creator God of the universe, God becomes boring to you. Guys, you know, to become biblically illiterate, to not care about doctrine, to not care about opening the word of God is to have fallen into this scheme. 
Guys, we cannot pull answers out of the air, especially living in the culture we live in today. It is vital that we open the book for all of our answers. Guys, does the spirit of God and the word of God shape your life? I mean, when people ask me, you know, Salim, how do you love your wife? How do you love Jackie? Guys, the spirit of God with the word of God needs to shape how I love my wife. When they ask me, how do you parent your children? How are you doing parent, you know, parenting Boston and Christian? The spirit of God with the word of God needs to shape how I parent my children. When I'm asked, how do you spend your money? Well, what's the answer? Well, the spirit of God and the word of God needs to shape how I spend my money. When people ask me, what is God like? What is his love like? Well, the spirit of God with the word of God needs to shape how I view God's love for me. Are you getting this? Everything for us to know must be answered by God and we must seek answers from him and be led by his spirit. It should confront me and shape me and mold me into who God, excuse me, would have me to be. Another issue is we tolerate sin in our lives. Guys, these churches were infiltrated with cultural sin and the participation was normal. I mean, does this sound familiar? Yes. History always repeats itself. We have the same issue today. I mean, think about sexual sin. Think about porn. How normalized has it become? Think about homosexuality. Society has made this all normal and the church needs to wake up to this. The current is sweeping us away and we must fight against this. God hates sin. His son died for sin. So how can we tolerate it? How can we take sin so lightly? It's not wrong to stand up for God's truth. If you offend someone, it's okay to offend them if you're standing on the word of God. It's not okay to offend them because of your opinion or your feelings. But God's word, it, it, God will deal with it. God is the author. God is the one who made, makes up the rules. He calls the shots. And if you're speaking his truth in love and people don't like it, that's not your problem. So do we fight? How do we fight? Well, we must rightly understand who God is. And when you rightly understand who God is, you will rightly understand who you are. We behold God. We look at the beauty of God and we know him. And that forms how we see and understand ourselves. Listen, discipleship is is the knowledge of God and self in community on mission. It is right in the center of knowing God, which leads to knowing and understanding self in community on mission with God to accomplish what he has set out to complete. We want to do doctrine. That's God's truth. We want to do that in community and on mission. We want to live out what we say we believe. We want our community formed and shaped by doctrine and mission. Guys, we don't want to just eat nachos together or go to dinner or go grab coffee at the local coffee shop. That is not Christian community. Christian community is informed by the word of God and on mission together. It is deep. It blows past Facebook friends and and Instagram friends and TikTok friends. It doesn't hide brokenness. It doesn't live in the dark. It doesn't hide doubt and fears. We step into the light and we stop the enemy from trying to destroy us. We don't put on band-aids on our wounds. We go for true healing. Guys, this guards us. It protects us and it leads us to a life in abundance. So what are you going to do, friends? Guys, this is all for week, uh, this week's episode of Straight Talk with Salim. I hope it challenges you and I, and I, I pray you'll tune in next week for episode six 
because we're going to be moving into the throne room of God, chapters five and six of Revelation. I encourage you to read, read ahead. We're going to move into the throne room of God where ultimate reality is. It's going to absolutely blow your mind and it's going to encourage your heart more than ever. Until next time, friends, you take care. My friends, thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of Straight Talk with Salim. Remember that I love you with the love of Christ and I implore you to just passionately pursue Jesus with everything you have.